Women of War is written and recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders, past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to war crimes, including rape, stroke, nudity, cruelty and death of animals. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Hi, I'm Hannah. I am a historian on, as this script currently says, quote, Cold War Bitches. Yeah. Yeah. And bonjour. They're bad bitches. What can yeah, I say? Bonjour, je m'appelle Nicola. Je suis professor of secondary school and primary school. We've reached the limit of your French, haven't we? Comment ça va, Hannah? Ça va? Ça va très bien, merci. All right. And this is Women of War, a podcast where we sure do podcast. Yes. Uh, but this week, we're doing a format change. Yes, so this episode, we will be learning about not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but not How many? six. We'll be learning about... Seven? At least 40 women! Oh, damn! Or, as I wrote in the script, 40 women from a period of... <laughs> it's just one tall woman. Like, she's 40 she's feet tall. tall. 40 women. She's, she's like a Power Rangers. She's as tall as you. Yeah. 40 women tall. <laughs> from a period, it's officially known as the olden time, or your, you know, it's from your, yeah. um, or at least the very end of the 11th century CE. So honestly, we're just going to have a little chat about a piece of woman's work, women's work, that has survived countless wars and years of neglect, and has avoided, until recently, being stolen by the British. That's honestly That's well a big done. achievement. Good yeah. job. The irony being, of course, the British made this. Ah. But you know what? They've stolen enough shit. Someone else can steal yeah, that shit too. Yeah, it's look, it's payback. Yeah. It's fair. It's a bitch. Yeah. So in this episode, you will be hearing about the Bayo, Bayou. I said Bayou. Bayou. But like it's French, who cares? Tapestry. Uh, which is I'm gonna explain it later. All so right. just keep rolling with what I wrote. <laughs> the tapestry. Yeah. Um you're gonna learn a little bit about the women who are depicted on it, as yeah. well as the women who made it. Yes, yeah, so first off. If you would read ahead, Hannah. Why would I read ahead? I don't know. You want me to be prepared? Yeah. I don't, we are I don't going, do that. We're going to contextualize the Bayou Tapestry, which you've probably heard of or seen reimaginings of in media as varied as the 1958 film The Vikings, comma, mm-hmm. Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, comma, Good Robin one. Hood, Prince yeah. of Thieves, and even as a couch gag on The Simpsons. So it is a 50 centimeter high. That's not very high. It's not high, but guess what, Hannah? It's really long. 68.3 meter long piece of embroidery, almost unique in the world for its size and for the fact that it survived almost intact and in good condition since it was made. Probably in the 1070s. Hannah, they can't see you. I know, but I'm losing. I thought it was like big. It's really big. It's like long. I thought it was like long and tall. You know, like like long tall Sally, like a medieval castle wall height. It's actually a height for a cathedral, a length for a cathedral. Yes, but yeah. I was thinking height, and fifty centimeters is not big. Tell that to your next boyfriend. All right, so the tapestry <laughs> is a piece of Norman, i.e., Northern French, commissioned art that serves to tell the story of how William, the Duke of Normandy, who was one hundred percent the rightful king of England, don't even ask. Um, and it tells the story of how he became King William I, a.k.a. William the Conqueror. His enemies took no chance. They called him the first English king, although he came from France. I'm gonna, look, I'm going to say, if you have to 
claim you're the 100% rightful king, but your name is the Conqueror. Yeah. There's a little bit of a disconnect there. He was there. just really good at... There's, there's something sus about he this. He was actually really good at this game called Conquers, and that's uh, why they couldn't believe in Conqueror. Like, I, so... no, he, he's sus. But it's so true. Or does the source have bias? Yes, much bias. Bias stitching. Men... <gasps> and it's not technically a tapestry. Uh, it's actually an embroidery. Yeah. But... Tapestries need stitched ducks. That's not... Yes, it is. I don't think that's the definition. Yes, it is. But everyone's called it a tapestry, so we're going to call it a tapestry. Yeah, like, some people are like, let's call the Bayou Embroidery from now on. It's like, you know what? It fulfilled the role of a tapestry, i.e. hanging on a wall. Yeah. The tapestry itself is made the, of... The fabric art of Bayou. Let's call it that <laughs> instead. Look, people get all art forms confused all the time, like any form of fibre art. Like, it's crochet. It's a craft! It's, it's knitting! Off. It's... Here's an ad for, like, a crochet hook, but they're using it like a knitting needle. So the tapestry is made of several linen panels stitched together and carefully embroidered using an art form that was developing in medieval England. So this art style is now called Romanesque, as it is visually similar to some elements of Roman mosaic. The embroidery itself was probably made in Canterbury, and Saxon embroidery during this period was prized in many areas of Europe. So, yeah, the people in England at the time were called Anglo-Saxons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the tapestry has a main story running through the centre, left to right, with Latin captions. It's surrounded by a detailed stitched border with a mix of animals from Aesop's fables and activities from everyday life. At other points, the border can feature as a sort of picture-in-picture. Picture. So during panel 33, for example, when Harold is told William is coming to England and he'd be pissed, you can see sailing boats in the lower border. Alternatively, this could be a reference to the Viking invasion at Stamford Bridge. Later during the tapestry, during the battle, the men spill into the border and you can see smaller arches, for example. So this might be to show the scale of the battle or to give some sort of sense of perspective. They hadn't invented perspective yet, so they were like, <laughs> to figure it out. And perspective in, in They have no concept of 3D in the medieval period. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's 2D. They couldn't invent those glasses yet. <laughs> they were like, Where? The Tanner, what is the... So there's, there's the Battle of Hastings is what is depicted on mm -hmm. the Bayou Tapestry. But what is the Battle of Hastings? It's a battle that took place in a small coastal village in Victoria. So annoyed. I never thought to make that joke myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> Edward the Confessor, the last of his house and first of his name, probably, ruled from 1042 to 1066. He died without clearly naming an heir, as this was before the advent of primogeniture in England, which is when your oldest child, which is usually male child, becomes the monarch after you die automatically. So yeah, according to the philosopher Leighton Weedle, the only things known to go faster than the ordinary light is monarchy. So he reasoned like this, you can't have more than one king, and tradition demands that there is no gap between kings, so when a king dies, the succession must therefore pass to the heir instantaneously. So possibly, he said, there must be some elementary particles, kingons or maybe quions, that do this job, but of course succession sometimes fails if in mid-flight they strike an antiparticle or a republicon. So Lightenweedle's ambitious plans to use his discovery to send messages involving the careful torturing of a small king in order to modulate the signal were never fully expounded because at that point the bar closed. Thank you, Terry Pratchett, for <laughs> guest starring on our podcast. It's um, such an honour to have you here. Did you did you just know? I knew. <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, Edward the Confessor's wife, Edith of Wessex, had a brother, Harold Godwinson. She had more than one brother, but the other important brothers here right now are Tostig and Wolfnoth. But they're not relevant yet, so don't worry about them. What is relevant is that in January 1066, Edward the Confessor died. 
Did he confess on his deathbed? I'll fucking kill you. Thank you. I'm so aggressive today. I'm so sorry. It's Friday. It's Friday. So Edward probably ended up naming his frenemy, Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex, as successor on the day he died. And Harold became king the following day, on January 6th, 1066. This was a slight issue because William of Normandy, the Duke of Normandy in modern-day northern France, thought he should be king. And some historians argue that Edward may have promised the crown to William. Maybe he was doing like a, you get a crown, you and get, you a, get crown, a crown, and you, you get, get a crown. crown. All three men were distantly related, as this was medieval Europe, and there was about five people altogether. Mm-hmm. Now, the English throne back in the day wasn't like it is today. Presiding over the Commonwealth Games and, and losing to Australia! Wearing a lot of hats and not doing much else. It was usually about managing power plays between earls and some light brutality in Scotland and Wales. But Harold and William wanted that crown. Tensions were high and became higher because in April 1066, a marvellous sign from God appeared in the sky. A bright light that could be seen by all. It shone for a week and told all who saw it one thing. The times, they were a-changing and the aliens had arrived. It actually wasn't aliens. Do you know what it was? No. It was Halley's Comet. Ah! Yeah. Like we know, we know what it was. That's fun. It's pretty cool. I like that. When William heard that Harold had claimed the throne of England, he was royally pissed off, as the tapestry depicts a time before Edward's death. So it shows William rescuing Harold from a shipwreck. Don't worry about it. But after William rescued Harold from this shipwreck and this kidnapper, don't even worry about it, Harold swore an oath to support William as king on some saints' holy relics. Well, that's a fair deal. Yeah. So in terms of, in modern terms, Harold had shook hands in front of God, and now not only he'd stolen William's throne, but he'd also broken a promise. Harold knew to expect an invasion from William and did wait down the south coast of England, but because the winds weren't favourable across the channel, William never turned up. So when Edward then, no, not Edward, Harold, then first heard news of an invasion up north at Stamford Bridge by a bunch of Vikings, he had to take his army up there and leave the south coast undefended. So when he got up there, he had to slaughter a bunch of people, including his own brother, Tostig, who was supporting the Viking oh, invasion. Tostig. We, we barely knew ye. <laughs> and then he's like, well, glad that's over. And then... Time hears, for a nice rest. Yeah. And then he hears that William has landed at Pevensey Bay in the south and had marched on to Hastings setting up a camp and building the first examples of castles in England. Oh. So um, while the French were coming in, they also burned a house to make way for their camp. One one singular house? One house. That's what they showed on the book. I just thought they burnt more oh. than one, but it's one house on the tapestry. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. They also had a yummy banquet at one point where Bishop Odo of Bayou blessed the food and their upcoming battle, and Odo was actually William's half-brother on their mother's side, because something I haven't been able to tell the kids at school... One of William's other titles was William the Bastard, because his parents oh, weren't married. Yes. And every time I get close to say to telling the kids, one of them will do something, I'm like, I can't tell you that. They're gonna you don't start. deserve this You this don't knowledge. deserve the knowledge of William <laughs> the Bastard. But I hear it in Sean Bean's voice, like, ah, oh, you bastard. William, you bastard. Legend tells that Harold's very tired army then had to walk 700 kilometres back down to Hastings to meet William's fresh army. But legend is untrue. It's only about 400 kilometres. You know, granted, that's on Google Maps, and the roads are a little better these days. But, although, you know, Roman roads, whatever. That was straight. Yeah. They went to Rome. Yeah. Very handy. Yeah. In addition, some of the men in the army would have gone home and other fresh troops would have been picked up. But still, it is a hell of a walk. Both William and Harold had armies of about 5,000 to 7,000 men each, which is quite large for this period. The Norman side, William's side, had talented archers, providing proto-artillery and legions of talented cavalry. The Saxons, Harold's side, had a technique known as the shield wall, which is similar to the Roman phalanx. Phalanx? 
flanks? Flanks? Shield turtle. Yeah. Turtle shield. They put the shields up and then they put the shields above their heads. And well, it's then... mostly shields in front. Yeah. It's mostly shields in front. You put your shield up, you put your shield down, you put your shield up and you hold it right there. This was common through Northern <laughs> Europe. <laughs> Including the song. And basically it's what it sounds like. Everyone line up, make sure your shields are touching. No homo. The first rows of... Yes, homo. <laughs> the first rows of men in the shield wall would be more elite armoured troops, including men called... House Carls. House Carls. That's an odd name. Like Hughes Carls, but we call them House Carls now, so... Okay. Who used huge battle axes and men with swords, knives and spears. The rows further back would have less armour or skill and a sword or a knife or a spear. An unbroken shield wall would be formidable to come up against, but its weakness is obvious. If it is broken, you've got a whole bunch of men standing close together with no chance to run. Mm-hmm. And one little knife. One, that's not a knife. No, that's a knife. So on the 14th of October 1066, William and Harold's armies met at Hastings, probably. We've never actually found the battlefield. Most medieval battles only lasted I told short... you it's in Victoria. Most medieval battles only lasted short <laughs> periods of time. Hell, most battles, unless there were sieges lasted relatively short periods of time until the advent of guns that didn't take ten minutes to load. Hmm. The Battle of Hastings probably lasted from first light at dawn to the afternoon. The armies were relatively well matched, and at one point William actually fell off his horse, which is deadly even now, um, and rumours, or rumours like spread he died anyway, and his men thought he might have cocked it and they were going to run away. But he got back on his horse, and he raised his helmet, and all his men went, Hooray! Quote, end quote, Hooray. <laughs> we know this happened because it's on the tapestry. And then William rallied his troops and charged the Saxon shield line, which didn't work. And then they faked a couple of retreats, which is illegal, by the way. And this broke the shield... I don't think the Geneva Convention existed at this point. It didn't, but it's illegal. (laughs) And this broke the shield line, and then they killed all the Saxons. Harold was killed probably by being hacked to death by Norman knights, or trampled by a horse, I don't know, I don't know. But in later years, the legend that he had died of an arrow to the eye spread. So um, why do you think they told this story about Harold being arrowed in the eye? Because it rhymes. Close. Uh, it's actually a great horrible history line where they're thinking about all the different kings and then they go, what was the bet in that arrow when he's written that would lead to his downfall? And I just like... It is beautiful. I think about what he did earlier. Well, how did he promise William? He swore on a relic. Yeah, of a saint. And yep. saints were like thought to take vengeance if you broke mm-hmm. an oath. So this is the idea of like maybe the arrow coming down is like a saint like dra- guiding mm. the arrow like through his helmet into his eye. Saint's like that tiny little bit. We're gonna make it. Hit. Yeah, and also being I'm, I'm acting the, it out. Uh, you're doing a good job. Thank it you. Looks great. And also being hit in the eye with something was a sign of like being a perjurer, a liar. Mm. So they could have added this bit of symbolism yeah, in later. Out. Yeah. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, and it looks fancy on a tapestry, like arrow through the helmet slit. Yeah, it's funny how it showed up on the tapestry, but we'll talk about that later probably. So following his victory. William of Normandy was crowned on Christmas Day 1066. Like Jesus! But then spent the next half decade running around England and Scotland murdering people with his mates. Like Jesus! I think he read a different Bible to a lot of people. Like Jesus! He also had difficulty getting the lords and barons of England to listen to him and was fast running out of money. So he introduced the feudal system and redrew a bunch of land boundaries so the rich could be richer and the poor could stay poor. But the rich would support him militarily and fiscally. And so he could tax people appropriately. The Doomsday Book was created, wherein everyone and everything in England was counted so William could know exactly how much shit he could take off different people. And basically, that's the period we're discussing today. We. Oui. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the Bayeux tapestry is not a tapestry. It's an embroidery. We've covered that. But it's been called a tapestry for so long, we're going to call it a tapestry. Yeah. We've already said that well, too. We're going to call it the Bayeux tapestry. Yeah. So it is almost unique in this period of European history due to its size, 68.3 metres long, its detail, and that it survived, amongst other things, being used to cover wagons during the French Revolutionary Wars, a poor review by Charles Dickens, <laughs> and an attempted theft by Hitler, and that is only in the last 200 years. I should Damn. have widened that out so you can see it. Tapestry expert and conservative... I'm sorry, but I just love the concept of it covering the wagons, because it's like cover a really long wagon, yeah. but a really tiny, ha, like really, really slim long. part of the wagon. <laughs> it's like a model train wagon. <laughs> well, they think that's why the mess, there's a panel missing. They're pretty sure oh. this one panel is missing, and it would maybe show either the English running away or William's coronation, mm-hmm. but that would have been the end. And so if you're wrapping something in it, yeah. that's going to be the end every time, and yep. so it's probably come loose. Yeah, that and they've been sense. like, who gives a shit about this? Yeah. No one's going to want to look at this in a couple yeah. hundred years. Um, so this is what a, a tapestry expert and conservator put it like, quote, the Bayou Tapestry is one of the supreme achievements of this period. Its survival almost intact over nine centuries is little short of miraculous. Its exceptional length, the harmony and freshness of its colours, its exquisite workmanship, and the genius of its guiding spirit combine to make it endlessly fascinating. End quote. And it is endlessly fascinating for the meme value alone. There was like a whole thing of doing Bayou Tapestry memes a few years ago. Mm. We've put a There's link. still some floating around. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? So we've put a link to the digitized version of the tapestry in the show notes, and we'll be using the panel numbers on top of the tapestry. They're, they've been hand drawn in um, to make reference to some scenes if you want to follow those along. The tapestry follows Harold's later broken promise to William, the death of Edward the Confessor, the ascension of Harold to the throne, Norman preparations for the invasion and the invasion itself, and finally, the Battle of Hastings. And as we said before, there is another battle panel probably, at least one, um, and it's commonly assumed that it shows the Saxon retreat and maybe William's coronation. Who knows? But it is gone in the mists of history. It's gone. Napoleon used it. <laughs> as, no. <laughs> Not going to finish that. The tapestry would probably not have been unique in its time. Wall hangings appear as part of description in some stories and poems by travelling bards or writers. One writer, Baldrick of Dole, may even describe the tapestry in a longer poem about Matilda of Blois and William... (laughs) (laughs) so bad! I think it's Bliss. Bliss? No, but you don't pronounce the S in French. Blois? Matilda, William's wife. (laughs) Matilda and William the Conqueror's daughter, Adela of Normandy. Historians tend to agree on a few things about the tapestry. Mostly. Historians don't agree on much ever. One, the tapestry was probably made in England, probably in Canterbury, by a group of noble women living in a nunnery after being widowed or never being married. There were probably 10 to 14 of these embroiderers, and it would have taken them all about three or four years, working sometime between 1067 and 1077. They would have used images of... Mu- Im- <laughs> of <mums>. <laughs> <laughs> All, everyone in the tapestry is a monk. <laughs> we sell any monk. Any, 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 any monk. All the horses have the monk haircut, like, everybody. <laughs> so, the embroiderers, uh, they would have used images monks sent them of the battles. And the second thing historians tend to agree on, two, the tapestry was probably commissioned by Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Bay, Bayeux. Yeah, it's actually Bayeux, that's how you say it. Bayeux? Yeah. Oh, sweet. Though one historian makes the argument that it was Edith of Wessex, i.e. Edward the Confessor's wife, who commissioned it. Art historian Carola Hicks argued that it could be Edith who asked for it as she wanted to prove her loyalty to William the now Conqueror and was quote-unquote reconciled to his reign. Some also argue that it could have been Matilda, William's wife, who commissioned it, as the tapestry is sometimes called 
the tapestry from Matilda's reign in France. I feel like that probably sounds better in French. La tapisserie de Reine Mathilde or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I always sound a little bit like a gangster like when I <laughs> try and do French. But Matilda had already paid for a warship for her husband, which is the biggest one on the tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so why get you... Why? You bought him a boat. Yeah. The tapestry is a letdown. It is. Um, it's like buying a, like a yacht and then you buy a poster. Yeah, like, I got you an Elvis poster. It's Yay. like, yeah, like, thanks. Well, there's a boat on it, too. Thanks. <laughs> so the, pa- the patron of the tapestry is most likely um, Bishop Odo, William's half-brother on his mother's side. The evidence for this is relatively strong. Odo was the second most powerful man in England by the time it was made, and so would have had the cash to commission it. The tapestry was most likely made in Canterbury on some of the lands Odo was given by William, and Odo is depicted multiple times in the tapestry, including in the banquet scene, which we'll give the, ta- the, ba- the um, number for in the show notes. And finally, the tapestry was on display on and off in Bayou Cathedral after the cathedral was finished and the latter site was consecrated for the next 700 years. The tapestry's length about 70 metres, is also said to more or less fit in the internal, like, the main room, the main hall of the church, mm. with a little bit of space at the end, because there's an X in the middle of the tapestry almost, and they think that's where it would, like, that's the middle of the back wall, nice. and then it goes around, you walk around the cathedral and you yep. look at it. So we think that's why it was Odo. This also leads to the question, does the source have bias? And, of course, the source has bias. The women who made the tapestry were probably Saxon and may have experienced the violence of the Norman invasion, while the man paying for it was Norman, not name, and that man's brother was the new king of England, who was also a Norman. The source is complex, and, you know, all the source have bias. Yeah, the source has bias, and also translations of the titles that are on the tapestry itself, and again, they can be differently translated in certain ways, because it's like this weird Latin, but it's also got shortened things in those spaces between the words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the women made the Bayeux Tapestry, but there are a few named women on the tapestry itself, so we're going to look at them now. Yes. So it's partially understandable there aren't that many women on it, because it depicts a medieval battle where unless you're Joan of Arc, um, women aren't usually welcome there. So there are three women in the main story of the tapestry. Edith of Wessex, seen in panel 26 as it becomes panel 27, um, at uh, Edward the Confessor's deathbed. Mm -hmm. The second woman is Alfgiva, and we're actually not sure who she is, as this was like the Jane of its day, or like the Hannah Louise... Louise, Stephanie, what's other common, like, girls' names? Uh, Sophie. 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 Kate. I feel like... Yeah, Kate's a good one. There's always Stephanie's in my class. Rachel. Rachel. Monica. Chandler. (laughs) (laughs) Phoebe. (laughs) Oh, Phoebe. Joey. Um, So we're not sure who Elfgiver was, but she was clearly well-known during the period because the embroiderers chose not to give context, so they are assuming contemporary viewers would know who she was. You can see Elfgiva on panel 15, and her face is being gently touched by a cleric. And in Roman art, this is a sign of, like, mourning or tenderness. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Little tenderness! The panel with Elfgiva is kind of random. Placed between a panel showing William taking Harold to his manor in Normandy after, rescu- after rescuing him from this dude, Weedo. Don't worry about it. Great name. This is actually the only scene in the tapestry where a woman is the main point of focus. Edith is shunted off to a corner, and later women are relegated to the bottom of the border itself, or the border itself. There are many arguments as to who Elfgiva could be, including... One, Edward the Confessor's mum, because we're about to see her son die. Two, one of Harold's two sisters, or a daughter of Harold, perhaps hearing about Harold's kidnapping or rescue. Three, the 
Welsh king's widow, who was originally set to marry Harold, but then didn't. Four, the mistress of Canute the Great, a former king of England. And five, finally, perhaps it is a depiction of one of the embroiderers hearing about the news or the request for the tapestry itself. Vote now to share your favourite theory about Elfgiva. <laughs> Thank you. Voting is now closed and we will share the results after five ad breaks. <laughs> And it will be a controversial decision that no one seems to have voted for. Yeah, and like, in a weird way, Shannon Noll will prove that he was truly the winner of our heart. <laughs> and then Guy... <laughs> so Elfgeber is a really interesting figure in that clearly during the 1070s she is well known enough that they could just throw her up there once with little context and suppose viewers would know exactly who she was. So I like think she's Harold's sister just because like closest female relative, he's being kidnapped or being rescued, so you would think she would want to hear about that. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're trying to put in that female perspective. Because if they're noble women, their husbands are probably going off to war as well, so that relief when hearing your husband, or that horror when hearing your husband is missing, um, would be reflected in her presence. I like that. But that's, yeah, we just don't know. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna vote for one of the embroiderers. I just, do like that. Because I like, I like the idea of like putting yourself into it. Like, yeah. Kind of being like, we're involved too... She puts herself back in the narrative. Yeah, right? like yeah. That. The last woman in the main story of the tapestry is the woman and her child in panel 47. Her home was burned by the Normans to make way for their advance, and we see her with her son either appealing to the Normans to not burn down her house, looking at the Normans in horror, or even fleeing from the fire itself. It's kind of like... She's ambiguous. like mid-motion. They're not very good at showing the motion in, Look, in some cases. Look, 50 centimeter high embroidery, it's going to be hard it's to convey... It's still pretty big. We're, the by the way, we both keep showing each other 50 <laughs> centimeter lengths with our hands. Get your rulers out, guys. Yeah. But like, I don't know where I was going. But yeah, it's yeah. going to be hard to show the complexity of human oh, yeah, emotion totally, in embroidery. Totally. The Norman soldiers loom large over her as she reaches up to them, her palm up. Scholars wonder if this is... Scholars wonder if this woman is a reflection of the embroiderer's experience of the invasion or inspired by stories from the Norman conquest. Yeah. So this could also explain some of the Aesops or Aesops. I don't know how you say it. I've Aes always said Aesops, yeah, but I don't too. think I've ever heard of it. Said, We're also so. Australian. Yeah, yeah, so we say everything wrong. Yeah. Aesops fable stories in the Yibur. borders of the Bayou Tapestry. I don't know where this accent's going. <laughs> some, of, some historians wonder if the inclusion of the fable characters and also this burning house are one of the few safe recourses these embroiderers had to push back against the brutality of the Norman Conquest. So let's talk about this some more. We don't know who these women are, but we can at least look at the symbols they might have used to thumb their noses at the Normans. Throughout the tapestry, William is often seen with a lion in the border above him, and Harold with a bird. At least, we think they're lions. That's what the book said, but it's medieval Europe, so they kind of look like vomiting bear dragons who've had a really rough night. William's Normandy flag also had lions on it, while Harold's coins and symbols usually included birds or occasionally dragons. Since dragons are cooler than birds, it makes sense that maybe the artists were dissuaded from sewing on dragons. Can't yeah. make him look too cool. Yeah. So there are at least eight different fables hidden in the border of the Bayou Tapestry, and though they might seem like random decoration to modern viewers, like with Elfgiva, they would know what they meant in the medieval period. They have the same kind of symbolism and connection to medieval viewers as we would today to seeing like an apple to reference temptation. Or Twilight. Or, or Twilight. Which is about temptation! <laughs> it all comes full circle. Um... <laughs> Or a butterfly to symbolise rebirth. Mm -hmm. And I actually couldn't think of a third example, but there are so many. But the, minute, so the many. minute you ask the one, you're like, uh... Yeah. Um, I can't think of anything like, right now. Literally. Like, yeah. The sun rising to represent rebirth. I don't fucking know. Yeah. So we're you know gonna, what we mean. Yeah. We're going to just focus on the most well-known and best-featured fable in the tapestry itself, which is called The Fox and the Crow, which can be seen several times in the early parts of The Border. 
So even now, the fox and the crow is well known throughout France, and images of it feature on schools in Bayeux. So that blows out the school of Villas Bretonneux out of the water because it's got carved possums only. There's no foxes or crows. The possums are cool. Nos sont jamais australiens. Yeah. Oui. Oui. How does this story of the fox and the crow All right, so one morning the clever fox was sniffing through the forest looking for something to eat. He looked up and saw the crow sitting high in a tree with a piece of cheese and was like, hell yeah, I'm not eating that crow, but I do want that cheese. So the fox says, good morning, beautiful, to the crow, and the crow's like, huh? And wanting the cheese, the fox decided to flatter the crow. Good morning, beautiful, said the fox again. I bet your voice is as beautiful as your plumage. And the crow's like, hell yeah, I do have a great voice, and opens her beak to sing. And that's when the cheese fell from her beak to the ground, where the fox nicked it. <gasps> and that's the end of the story. It's beautiful. So what's the moral, Hannah? Cheese is amazing. Do you actually want to have a guess at the moral, though? Uh, flattery. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not losing sight of your own goals when you're flattered. Ooh, that's a good no, one. So that's one interpretation. So the main argument is, others argue, don't give in to flattery is one, or keep your wits even when people are flattering you. So Basically, you that's bang, what I said. On. Yeah. Yep. So why would they? Why would the embroiderers include this fable? The obvious response is that Harold is the fox and William is the crow. If you're a Norman supporting William's claim to the throne, this makes sense. Harold is a cheat and a sneak and has stolen the throne after having promised it to William. Does that make sense? Yes. But also, if you position William as the fox and Harold as the crow, and they do this with the placement of the crow and the fox mm-hmm. in the in the border, mm-hmm. in some areas William is more closely aligned with the fox and Harold with the crow. So you can also argue this might be the embroiderer subtly saying William had stolen the throne from Harold. And if Harold's symbol was a bird, yeah. crow was a bird. The crow's a bird. So the there's like that the extra layer. Yeah going on. And we also don't know, like, they the monks gave them the images of the battle, but I don't think they gave them the, the borders. Yeah. So, it's hard to say. Yeah. yeah. We'll never know. We'll never know. Let's go back. And uh, I thought we should talk about Edith of Wessex. I would love bit. to talk about Edith of Wessex. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, if you remember from way back when, Edith is one of the two named women in the main section of the tapestry, the wife of the former king, Edward the Confessor. Edith was a highly educated woman who lived ten years after the death of her husband and the accession of William the Conqueror. Good for her. She was born in around 1027, the daughter of nobility, vaguely related to King Canute the Great after marriage. Her birth name was Geetha, but she was renamed Edith when she married Edward in 1045. So I've told the kids a little bit about this, but I can't tell them about King Canute the Great because, like, I'm just so worried. I'll yeah. say it wrong on the board. <laughs> and like, it's like, you don't need to know that. Nope. It nope. was just another king. It was a Viking king. Don't yeah. even fucking worry yeah. about it. I mean, like, you know, you get letters mixed around in your head when you're writing. That's bad. I don't think they'll just see the anagram. Yeah. Like, we've been talking about the 69-hour work. <laughs> it's exhausting. I've never heard the word nice so much in my entire life. <laughs> so, like her husband, Edith... Oh, this is, like, ironic what we were just talking about. Like her husband, Edith was apparently a very pious person, which makes sense. She was raised at Wilton Abbey, which was established in the probably the 800s, and it actually hung on till the early 1500s, so Edith wasn't there the whole time. How do we know this? She was dead. At Wilton, Edith learned several languages. She was clearly attached to the Abbey because she eventually paid for it to be rebuilt out of stone instead of wood. 
They did such a good re- job rebuilding it that King Stephen tried to use it as a base during the anarchy, the Civil War, a hundred years later, but Queen Matilda, William the Conqueror's granddaughter, actually chased him off. You should watch Pillars of the Earth if you want to know more. It's actually pretty good. Edith was the first woman crowned queen in England, as opposed to just being married to the king, and was crowned the day she married him in January 1045. They had no children, either because they were both so pious they didn't consummate the marriage, or Edward was so pious he didn't consummate the marriage, or for other reasons outside of what honestly sounds a bit like propaganda to make Edward sound unprepared to be a good king or a decent man. Like a decent husband. Like that's yeah. the husband. According to like the morals of the time. You like You bang. As I have talked about and on Twitter, you make a baby. if I've let you like into my secret Twitter account. <laughs> um in some areas of Europe during the me- in areas of the medieval period, in certain eras, they would be like the woman has to like enjoy sex to get pregnant. Mm. So that could also This be was the period thing. of the female orgasm being important. Yes. I wonder what that's like. <laughs> so, Ed- Edward and Edith also may not have liked each other very much. Edith's family, the Goodwinsons, were very powerful and ended up being run out of England for trying to nick the throne. Edith was briefly held in a nunnery, which is where kings love to get their wives, before being reinstated as queen. Edith was also probably very smart. In addition to being, being a polyglot, she eventually became, after coming back from the nunnery, she eventually became... the nunnery. Yeah. Not funnery. Um, <laughs> she eventually became part of her husband's inner circle and one of his trusted advisors. She was in charge of how Edward looked and presented himself, and so was in charge of procuring his ornamentation, his clothes, and maybe even holy relics. Um, there is some discussion of Edith where it refers to her buying a bunch of relics for Wilton Abbey, and then she's like, mm, actually, I'm going to keep that one and that one and that one for myself. <laughs> so, so, again, she's... it could be propaganda to make her look selfish, and, oh, it's so good William came in and got rid of this bitch, but also... I just like them relics. It's the medieval equivalent of buying something with your business, like ABN, to get the discount and then using it at your house. Yeah. Yeah. Edith arguably lost more than most in 1066. After Edward's death, one of her brothers, Tostig, supporter of the Norwegian king's claim to the English throne. As Harold, Edith's older brother was claiming to be king at the time. Tostig was killed in a battle against Harold at Stamford Bridge. In the Battle of Hastings itself, Harold and two more of her brothers were probably hacked to tiny bits. Her last brother was held prisoner until he died in 1094. It sucks to be him. That was that wolf guy from the start. Yeah. I was going to put more in, then there was nothing else. And I was like, well, anyway, it's called Women of War, not random prisoner of war. Not Wolfgang of War. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he did actually get held in England during some times, I believe. But, you know. So he was held gently. Aww. Caressed softly. Edith may have lost the throne, but she did not lose her wealth. Good for her. In, um, in William's Domesday book, it lists her as one of the richest women of, of England. Good for her. So this is actually why some argue she commissioned the tapestry. Like Odo, she could afford it and would have wanted to put herself on William's good side. So later in life, still pious, she researched England's saints and assisted with one saint's biographer because that was like a really important job. Like, I am Saint Jeff's biographer. <laughs> why was Saint Jeff sainted? Because he woke up when he needed to. <laughs> And then Edith died in 1075 in December. Not but good you'd for actually, her. Um, you'd not know that because she only appears on the tapestry once. So those embroiderers were actually terrible feminists. Cancelled. Just unfollowed. Blocked. Cancel uh, the Bayou tapestry. Well, actually. I mean, um, maybe that's a bit extreme. Let's uncancel it All because right. the tapestry does have other women in it. 
But like so many elements, they're actually in the border of the work. On the top and on the bottom, there's this little border that has everyday items, the Aesop's fables, or the additional scene elements. So as the Battle of Hastings takes off, there's even spillover from the main scene, and you see the archers, and it's like seeing scores of Norman artillery. But there is also a naked lady. So, if you look at the border in panel 12, which is around the time when William meets Harold via that guy Weedo, there's two naked figures down the bottom, a man gesturing at a woman. Why? There are many theories. This scene could actually be a reference to a different fable about a father raping his daughter, perhaps implying the treachery and deceit Harold unleashed on William by stealing the crown. Or, perhaps, it's the embroiders trying to subtly talk about the horrors of the Norman invasion. It's probably very likely the Norman soldiers committed rape during their conquest of England. Mm. However, there are far more willies than naked women on the tapestry. There are 93 willies. Five belong to men, though, and the rest belong to horses. That's less fun. The majority of the human penises are in the borders of your everyday scenes of life, or just for the lols, or perhaps as part of the Aesop's Fable bits. <laughs> the bits are part of Aesop's Fable <laughs> One historian, George Garnett, who is the man who counted all the penises. What a legacy. What a legacy. What is a legacy? It's counting kind of penises <laughs> you never get to see. <laughs> what did George Garnett say was important about the penises on the tapestry? So he, George Garnett... And, like, not to be rude, this is a just cis male thing to say, but he argues the penis is the ultimate symbol of power, and that's why William's horse... No, let me rephrase that. That's why Willie's horse has the biggest willy. <laughs> and if you've ever met a male horse, though, that's actually not that impressive. Um, ultimate symbol of power, blah, blah, blah. So he argues that perhaps men made the Bayou Tapestry. Garnet argues... Garnet argues that actually men might have made the Bayou Tapestry because a nun or a cloistered woman in the 1000s would never have the temerity or stomach to stitch one penis, let alone 93 of them. How's it and feel, George, those... knowing you've never met a woman in I... your life? <laughs> yeah, he's never met a woman. Like George. Because, like, secondly, the tapestry was made by close to women who would have probably had husbands, sons, or brothers, and mm-hmm. this is before bathing in private or private bedrooms were invented. Everyone's seeing naked everybody in the middle of Yeah. Period. Like, that's how it is. Exactly. Buddy. Buddy, my pal. You know, you spend any time around young kids... You're going to see penises? Yeah. Wasn't it like nuns did Childbirth. medicine? They and did medicine. Yeah. yeah um, penises appear. Yeah. And like in a non-sexual context, in a sexual context mm-hmm. as well. And like honestly, actually after the Battle of Hastings, people strip the bodies to take stuff away. Mm. So again, that could be another way of being like, oh, they're showing naked men to like show that. Yeah. It's just a bit silly, really. Bit of a silly willy. But I thought that would be a good note to end on. <laughs> the 93 penises of the biodiversity. <laughs> I Women of War, where we discuss how many penises there are in a tapestry. Well, it's funny because it's like um, 791 pictures of animals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, people have like poured over this for literal I centuries. mean, it's been there for so long, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Hitler wanted to steal it because um, it's like the great white history of mm-hmm. Europe artwork. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, Hitler, it shows the horrors of war. You fucking idiot. But, um, the point over Like, Himmler was like, personally, like, we got to go get the tapestry. And yeah. all the French were like, no. <laughs> No. I know we left it outside in the rain for a long time, but we should keep the tapestry. We should take it away from the tapestry. It's our tapestry to do what we want with, like, and, leave yeah. it abandoned. And it was also very late in the war when they like were trying to get at it, so they priorities were every they were very yeah. skewed. But yeah, I just liked it because it's like this weird like way of like threading in talking about like source bias and the different roles of women in the tapestry and outside mm-hmm. of the tapestry and around the tapestry. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really 
a fun little thing to look at. Yeah. And there wasn't really, as we've discussed with Valeda and um, even Tranganini a bit and the Artemisias, mm-hmm. these ancient and medieval women are kind of hard to write about yeah. in a lot of cases. It's just not enough. It's not, and, like, the problem is it's, like, the sources that are left, too. Like, you know, you have, like, one book. Yeah. Like, a, a, a nun, you know, wrote a book about her her convent history. Yeah. And you, like, you have that, but, like... Wednesday, slept. Thursday, scratched. <laughs> Friday, dug new hole. Diary of a Wombat <laughs> is a classic. Diary of a Womb Nun. <laughs> Nuns and Wombats, what's the difference? Honestly. They both crawl around on all fours. And attack people with their butt. Like, when I was in Poland, you know, very Catholic yeah. country, and all of a sudden I saw these nuns eating ice cream in the town square, and, like, I was like, nuns exist in the real world. Nuns, like, nuns eat ice cream and they know about penises. Like, it's just outside our realm of normal. Yeah. We don't see nuns on the road. We rig. don't see nuns anymore. Yeah. And on that note, members of the jury. <laughs> um, I think that's it for today. Yeah. I was going to do some more about Queen Matilda of mm. England, but there's actually a fair bit about her. Yeah, so, so we're probably going to do her episode by herself. Honestly, I really want to do one eventually on... Empress Matilda, mm-hmm. William's granddaughter, mm-hmm. but that is actually a really big project because it's a very interesting, complex period. It's a 12 year civil war. Yeah. Um, yeah, so next time you see anyone fun, just walk up to them and go, Did you know that a thousand year old piece of embroidery made by a bunch of nuns has 93 penises on it? <laughs> 93 penises on the wall, 93 penises there. We'll yeah, take, take one down and pass it around. 93 penises around the wall. Actually, you know what we should do? I'll just briefly say this. Um, the way people view the tapestry. Yep. So if the with theory... their eyes. Shut the. F- <laughs> so they're teaching all day. I have me a time to go fuck themselves. <laughs> well, I do, but like in a nice. Also, way. I feel like that was a very Nicola joke that I just yeah, made. Yeah, it was. It's and like, you were just me. like, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's directed at me. I can't cope. No. Um. So if it was hanging on the walls of the Bayeux Cathedral, which we believe it was, and it's yep. a way of re-establishing over and over again mm-hmm. that why William is the king, mm-hmm. but then again, why is it in France, not in England, but they would have taken it maybe across the channel. I feel like one thing we haven't talked about, sorry to interrupt, yeah. um, is literacy rates and like why this oh, is nothing. history. Absolute yeah. fat zero. Yeah. The monks and maybe some of the nuns. Yeah, so like no one could read. Yeah. So this is how you tell the history. In yeah, pictures. so the idea, there, there are there is written stuff on the tapestry, it's mm-hmm. in Latin, um, and so what they do, they hang the tapestry up, and and so there will be like a bard or a narrator walking around, like, and in this scene we see like William hearing of um Ed, of Harold stealing the crown, and he is angry as you can see because he's the rightful king, you know, wink, uh, and they might or they might sing a song about and it. You're right, you can see, yeah, a penis, <laughs> <laughs> and as. As you can imagine, though, because they had, like, candlelight. Yeah. That would have been, like, a like, banging it experience. It would have been, um, it, they would have looked like they were moving. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Cause and because, like, it would have, I feel like there's a bit of breeze, it might have, like, waved yeah. a little bit because it's material. And they also, in many times, they would spread herbs all over the floor. So as you walk, they're getting crushed, so you mm-hmm. can smell them. So it's actually quite a, like, a It was big, the original 4D. It's, a sensual, it's like Shrek 4D, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just really fascinating to think of, like, this work by a bunch of unnamed women being, like, the most important... Mm-hmm source we have in many ways for the oh the other thing I forgot to put in the script the second Bayou Tapestry mm. they made two they made one in 10, 6, 1077 or I feel like that was in the script did you take it out? I did take it out Okay. and then I believe in the Victorian era a group of Englishmen were like hang on that tapestry they just rediscovered that Charles Dickens didn't like um <laughs> <laughs> it's probably English why is it in France? we should have it we have everything else <laughs> We've got the Elgin Marbles. We've got the bloody Rosetta Stone. We ate the mummies. We ate them up. That was the Dutch, mostly. <laughs> we ate the mummies. We deserve this tapestry. So they actually made their own version. Oh. Or, or like a museum was like, hey, can you make your own version? So they, these women, they 
I think it was a few dozen of them, they actually did sew a copy, almost a perfect Damn. copy, and they also put their names on the bottom, mm-hmm. and they put the penises in. Good. And That's then, rare for Victorian. And then they sent the tapestry off to the museum, and the men looked at the tapestry and went, oh my god, is that a cock? And they put shorts on all Fucking the Fucking <laughs> And it's so good. It's that thing again of them going, oh, we can't have penises on this tapestry. What were the women thinking? It's like, the women are mothers. They're wives. Mm-hmm. They've got brothers. How do you think they made the babies? Yeah. But no, they can't see a penis. But the funny thing was, of course, when I was teaching the Bayou Tapestry, I used the Victorian version just because it was a clearer image mm-hmm. of what I wanted to show. And then one of my kids was like, Mia, you said this, we don't know who made the tapestry, but there's a name in the corner. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's two versions. Why'd they make two versions? They just wanted two versions. What was the differences? None. And um, that was the Bayou Tapestry and the women of the Bayou Tapestry throughout the ages. Beautiful. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Did you learn something? I did. I'm glad. Yeah. What was your favourite thing you learned? None of her penises. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> then you don't have to pause. <laughs> 93! It's, just, it's, such a, it's such a random number. I enjoy that fact. And there's actually also um, a great song called 1066. Um, it's to the tune of Sexy Back. And it's by this historian, female history teacher, who like wrote this whole song about the Amazing. battle. Amazing. So I'll actually put that in the show links because yes. it will never leave your head. Anyway, I think that's good. I'm yeah, happy with that. I'm happy with that. Um, keep your ears up for Hannah. She might pop up somewhere you're not expecting her soon. She might. She oh, might. I don't know if our audience crossover is going to be great. It might be, it might be grey. <laughs> it might be red. It might be black and white. We just don't know. Anyway, um, thank you for listening. Hannah, yes. where can we be, where can we be pierced? We can be- I mean, where can we be found? <laughs> The penises can be found if you Google the bio tapestry or look at the link yeah, that we put in the show notes. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to put where the penises are. You can find the penises yourself. We will leave that trip for the you. The way God intended. Uh, if you want to find more about the podcast, we have a website, womenofwarpod.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at womenofwarpod. We are most active on Twitter. I apologise for that. But that's just where I spend my time. And also, that's where most of you talk to us. Yeah. So we're going to be t- um, we talk back. And if you want to email us, we're womenofwarpod at gmail.com. You can be like, I found all five penises. Hear that? No, actually, do not. <laughs> No, I retract that statement. However, if you know of a woman of war or a group of women that you would really like love us to learn more about, please feel free to email us and let us know yep. if we've said something you disagree with, which medieval history is not my bag, so I probably did a lot of wrong things in this one. The source has bias. There's actually see. 94 penises. <laughs> no! <laughs> the, the historian who counted them is the 94th penis. I'm sure he's a lovely man, but like, Jesus Christ. Dick's yeah. just a dick sometimes. Yeah, man. That's anyway, not that deep. I hope my kids don't listen to this one. Alright. <laughs> we will we will see you then. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Back in 1066. Yeah. Edward the Confessor, he had no kids. Yeah. The English throne became a huge conflict. These titties are a war cry. <laughs> and Harold became Harold the First the following Actually, day. I don't know if he became Harold the First. He might have been Harold the Second. So let's just like pretend you didn't say that. One writer, Baldrick of Dole, may even have. Sort of.